Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, and, I'm excited. And, and why are you excited, Nia? Because this is another summer of SCOTUS. Except, <laughs> except we're not talking about cases most of this summer, right? We're going to do a wrap up towards the end of the summer. Yes. Of the um, of the big happenings, which may be a two-parter, folks, because there's been a lot of happenings. But really, this summer, we're actually talking about the justices, the sort of, um, uh, like today's well, the, episode, we're going to do the interplay, the personal interplay, but we're also going to talk about sort of the myths of merit and the diversity and lots of other things about the justices themselves that, because uh, you know, in previous summer of SCOTUS, we did all cases. And yes. so if you're, if you're listening to this and you're going, oh man, they're going to go through a bunch of cases again, and you don't like that. Nope. We're saving you from that. And we will warn you in the last two episodes. So like, stop listening. If you don't want to hear about all the cases. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of sort of like going behind the curtain yes. with a lot of these episodes. Um, uh, once again, uh, a nice Wizard of Oz uh, reference. Okay, let's see how many podcast episodes where we can actually make that reference. But we're going. <sighs> okay, we're okay. Challenge behind, taken. Okay, we're but we're, we're we're going behind the curtain. Okay, we're kind of sort of, you know, whatever your preferred metaphor. We're we're lifting up the veil. Okay, um, we're kind of sort of going in and, and looking at you know, some things you may have wondered about the court. Um, right. and, um, and, and that's what we're going to do with the, this series of, of uh, Summer of SCOTUS episodes, right? So my first, my first question to you, or my first statement to you, is so the justices all adore each other. They all get along. Blah, blah, blah. They love each other. Everything's fabulous. End of discussion, right? Not quite. I like that. Okay, so Aki made notes, and we're going to get into some of the more personal relationships with with individuals. But he has a phrase in here um, that uh, that they that some of FDR's appointments did not get along personally or professionally, and were referred to as, and I quote, nine scorpions in a bottle." Yes. I love that image. First of all, who the heck could get nine scorpions in a bottle? That's dangerous to start with. So well done, you FDR. But well, and, also, and, and it's, and it's, it's kind of the sort perfect of... image because they really are in a very small, very um, apparent, like, like there's no hiding the justices, when they are sitting on, in, in, you know, on banc, right, when they're sitting up there together, there's no hiding if they don't like each other. There's no hiding if there's interpersonal difficulties because they are right up there together. It, it is in a unique work situation. <laughs> yes. 
and it's been described a lot. Of, it's been described a lot of different ways. You know, uh, that's uh, an excellent point. It is a okay, unique. There's nothing like it. it. It is. There is nothing like it because, and because federal judges are living longer, and are serving longer. I mean, some of these justices on the Supreme Court are working together for 15, 20, 25 years. I mean, it, it is almost, you know, like a marriage. They are together so long. Um, and as you pointed out, Nia, on one hand, um, a lot of their work is behind closed doors. On the other hand, they have a very public aspect to their work when they all assume the bench and have oral arguments. And then when they publish their opinions. So it's very easy for us to go ahead and say, well, I don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but it doesn't look like, you know, this justice and that justice is getting along. But some of them do. But we've had some situations where um, they didn't. And you mentioned one of the classic ones to where the assumption was that because FDR, by the time he died in office, his fourth term as president, he had essentially picked all nine of the justices. He had promoted one of the sitting justices um, um, to chief but the other eight he had picked. So the assumption was because FDR had picked them, they would all get along. <laughs> and they didn't. Okay. Well, you regularly say on this podcast, and listeners have heard this many times, these people have been told they are the smartest people in the room for their entire, entire life. Yes. And then all of a sudden they get on the Supreme Court and somebody says, yeah, you mean you're all right. Right. Or in like some cases, that, or some cases, they're open. The justices are openly dismissive of one another. Right, and so it, then it, it must be that you go from sort of being used to being the highest of the high to being, you know, uh, just another chucklehead among nine kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and, and unlike that, the rest of us, Nia, who have at times suffered great defeats in our life, right? Personally, professionally, you know, a lot of these justices never have, right? So when you get on a body to where you're just one of nine votes and you can't convince most of them to think like you do, I mean, well, you're ill-prepared and most of these justices, as they were coming through law school, could probably talk circles around their colleagues. Oh, my goodness. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they were yeah. used to winning in, in terms of moot and all that other stuff. They were used to winning. All that. And then they get on the court and, they, and somebody listens politely and then says, huh, and then moves on. You're like, wait, what do you mean, huh? And they're like, yeah, I don't agree. What, 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 that's got to be very hard. And the other thing that's got to be hard is, um, okay, so in my job, I happen to work with nine 
with there's there are nine of us right so we are like a little supreme court except we're nothing like a supreme court but <laughs> um but if if i suddenly took a disliking which by the way is not going to happen i adore my colleagues but if i suddenly took a disliking to this group of people i could get another job leave vcu or leave from within vcu go to another part of vcu or whatever there is no escape from the supreme court once you're there you can't say i'd like to transfer to the supreme court of france like it doesn't work that way your your choice is die or retire yes you either will yourself to death or you or you retire and you and you just quit because there's no other place for you to go like no supreme court justice right am i correct has ever said just put me back on the federal bench yeah not not none of them have ever done that I, I can't imagine them doing that and i think the closest one you're going to mention way later one of the loners left earlier than probably was necessary because yeah, they were driving him bonkers. And we'll get to that in, in, in a later part yeah, of the In just a few minutes. Podcast. But, I mean, but yeah, there's so no it's, quitting. It's, it's, it's this or nothing. It is an unusual work situation. <laughs> and because of the career path, when you get there, it, it can be extremely difficult, right? I mean, the first thing is, it is monastery-like. Okay, because the court historically has prided itself on speaking through the words of its opinion, right? So it's very unusual to have very popular justices in the public consciousness like we saw with Ginsburg and Scalia. Okay, if you get on the Supreme Court, you basically know that whatever aspirations you may have had politically, socially, et cetera, it ends there. Because again, that's the pinnacle, okay, of, you know, for most of them, what they have been attempting to do with their professional lives, right? And you have a note in here that the most of the cases are decided 9081 or 72, right? Which means that your name is just one of seven listed on the bottom of the case. Like you don't stand out. If you asked me to name it beyond the current justices, if you asked me to name an additional 10 justices, I'm not sure I could do, I could probably name you five or six of the chiefs right? Because they were, because it's usually known as the Burger Court or the Warren Court or the Rehnquist Court. So I could name those and I could name your beloved Byron White because you've mentioned your beloved Byron White many times. <laughs> yes. Um, but I couldn't pick him out of a, dis- I couldn't pick subject- him out of a lineup if, if I was required. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and we may remember the first, right? And, and my who, beloved Sandra Day. Yeah, first you, know, woman. Who's, you know, who was the first woman? Who was the first right. African-American? who was the first um, Hispanic justice, right? We can remember the first, but most of them are nameless and faceless right. for most Americans, right? And, and they kind of prefer it that way, right? They kind of want to Most be of the justices do want that, right? Because- Faded into sort of the group. The yes. group decided- Yes. And yes. my name is part of the group. Okay, but when you're on that group, not everything is peachy, right? <laughs> 
not everything is great. Let's okay. start with good before we go to bad, because you yeah, and I have a tendency to, 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 to go, go right negative. Negative, right? <laughs> yes. Let's, well, let's well, talk about the good first. Okay. okay. Well, I mean, you can probably identify one of the 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 one of the most fascinating friendships on the court and it was of recent vintage ginsburg scalia yes um you Two could not have opposite <laughs> individuals both in terms of personality ideology but they got along fabulously physically yes like okay. antonin scalia was not a small man okay. he liked he, to eat he was a healthy substance to substantive person and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was tiny she was tiny and thin yes. she was strong because she went to the gym every day but she yes. was you know like even even their physical like everything about them seemed to be opposite and yet they regularly they all, went to the opera they regularly drank wine together they you know I mean their family spent New Year's Eves together um you know they did stuff uh, with their spouses together makes me um, happy um and and uh and, and then they both credit each other for improving the quality of their work and their professional experience right i mean you know scalia you know it said a number of times i mean scalia even recommended um to somebody in the obama administration you guys should pick Elena Kagan to serve on the court because he thought so highly of her as solicitor general. Okay. He liked people who challenged him, right? Right. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg challenged him. And likewise, yes. you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, said, okay, he is a stinker. He, <laughs> you know, rules, you know, completely opposite the way I do. But he made me a better writer and a better thinker as a justice. Just absolutely fabulous, right? And I would argue that Scalia is somewhat like you in that he really likes his female colleagues. Like he likes yes. that the way um, the differences in the way that men and women think and the way they approach problems. And it's always fascinating to hear someone who has a different experience than you yeah um, i mean and, and and i and 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 you've heard this from me uh when we haven't been recording um you know i can trace it back to the fact that for most of my young life um you know i grew up with women right i have two sisters okay i have a strong mom i have a strong grandmother okay they all think differently than i do they perceive the world differently. Um, and, you know, they always called me out. They always called me out, right? Um, and I just, I was just absolutely fad, fascinated, okay, because they thought differently than I did. And I loved it, right? Um, I get the I feeling never, Scalia was like that, that he. Uh, yeah, yeah he, he enjoyed it. Um, we have other examples. I, I mentioned Justice Elena Kagan. Um, she sits on the court currently right beside Alito. Okay, how is yes. that arranged? Oh, okay. J. Rob uh, sits in the middle, right? 
Yes. And then on each side of him are the two most senior associate justices. So on one side would be Clarence Thomas, and on the other side would be Stephen Breyer. And then they basically fan out, okay, by tenure, right? Oh. All right. So right now, Kagan sits beside Alito, okay? Do they move around or do they always well, sit in the same spot? Well, yeah, they move around as you get new justices. Right, but when you yeah. don't get new justices, if you have a, a while, static court. Yes, you sit. you end up sitting beside somebody for a long period of time. Okay, so you yeah. always sit next, she will sit next to Alito until one of you them know, retires from the bench or there's a new person that shuffles everybody. Yeah, because you know she may okay. end up on the left of, 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 of Roberts and Alito ends up still staying on the right. Okay, but nevertheless, they've been sitting beside each other for you know a little while now. Um, and, and a number of Supreme Court reporters have commented they really like sparring with one another. Like, you know, he will get done asking a question and Kagan will just start smiling. Or she will go ahead and make a pithy response to a lawyer and Alito can barely contain himself because he wants to go ahead and jump in, right? You know, that's the kind of thing you hope is going to go on with Supreme Court justices during oral arguments, right? Right. And that it is um, lighthearted oh. in the sense of yeah, it's playing off each other as opposed yeah. to, oh, I feel the need to cut you off at the knees. Like that's yeah. the one you don't want. You yeah, don't, you don't want, want people it. who are being okay. sort of brutal with each other, which we are going to get to eventually. But yeah. um, um, Sotomayor has said in a number of public speeches, she absolutely loves Clarence Thomas. Thinks he is one of the nicest individuals she has ever worked or encountered in her life. Okay. Well, isn't he one of the few who who is very friendly with the staff as well as? Oh yeah. Um, it, it it it's not a slam against the other justices, but in the world of justices, right? The higher you go as a justice, the less you have to do with the janitorial staff, the less you have to do with the secretary pool, right? The less you have to do with what I think of as sort of the classified staff that keep a courthouse running. Running, right? You and you it, don't have as much to do with those people because you have your one or two clerks and you have your one court reporter that's always with you. And, and I, I guess I've heard that rumor has it that he is... Oh, he knows everybody's name, okay? From the lowliest janitor... Okay, to the, the 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 marshal of the court. He knows everybody. Okay. Says hi to everybody, right? Um, historically, um, and this is one of my favorite anecdotes ab uh, uh, about the Supreme Court. Um, um, in uh, the 19, uh, late 1950s through the early 1970s, two Supreme Court justices on the opposite end of the ideological spectrum ended up becoming such close friends that on their latter years on the court, as their health began to fail, they took care of each other. And I'm talking about the second Justice Harlan and Justice Hugo Black. Um, uh, and they could not have been any different, any more different, Nia, right? You know, Harlan grew up, okay, um, 
he was, you know, he, he was uh, an elite, right? I mean, his grandfather, okay, served on the Supreme Court, right? He ah. was an elite, right? Uh, he was educated in the Ivy Leagues, was a Rhodes Scholar. He was a corporate Wall Street attorney, okay? Had to be, yeah, had his arm twisted by uh, uh, the Eisenhower administration to become a federal judge. Yeah, because right? that was quite the pay cut. Oh, a huge pay cut, right? <laughs> okay. Um, and he was a frequent dissenter on the Warren Court. Hugo Black, on the other hand, okay, never finished law school, okay? He got a certificate of attending the University of Alabama Law School. <laughs> he showed up. <laughs> okay. He was a former member of the KKK. He was a New Dealer, a New Deal Democrat from the state of Alabama. You want to talk about being unusual, yeah. right? Okay. But he became the intellectual architect of the Warren Court Revolution, and they became very good friends. And at the end of their time on the court, as they both were beginning um, to uh, fail physically, um, they took care of one another. I, I just love those stories. That's so I love, nice. I love how when um, uh, one of your faves, um, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, um, was appointed uh, uh, to the Supreme Court, uh, Lewis Powell. Again, you want to talk about different individuals, right? I mean, they were kind of similar in terms of their jurisprudence. Both of them were moderate conservatives. But Lewis Powell was born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, right? Okay, he was Southern, okay, he was a Southern gentleman, right? Okay, Sandra Day O'Connor was born and raised on a farm, okay, um, in West Texas, okay? She, you know, she was a farmer's daughter. She was a cattle rancher, right? You know, she went to Stanford. Um, uh, I mean, she couldn't get a job out of law school, right? Lewis Powell never had to worry about getting a job, right? Huh. But when she got confirmed to sit on the Supreme Court, Lewis Powell took her under, her wing, under his wing and explained how the court operated, you know, helped her when she began to get criticized from both liberals and conservatives on the court, because Lewis Powell had been, you know, had been criticized by both liberals and conservatives on the court for being a moderate, for being a swing voter. Um, loved the, I, I absolutely loved their relationship. She was devastated when he retired and then when he eventually died. She was just devastated, yeah. And now in terms of romance, Romance oh. is not a thing on the court. Most no. of the justices are married. No. Yes. Um, some of them multiple times, which we will get to in a moment. Yes. But but they're they are not a like this is not Peyton Place up in there. Only nine people. You are probably not going to do the whole affair having thing. No. No. And all I that mean, other and, kind and, of stuff. And, and we haven't really gotten a lot of that in terms of. Okay, let me back up by saying. The other two branches are not necessarily known for their 
fidelity maritally. But that's not a thing at the Supreme Court, right? Like part of that is they're older and wiser and smarter, right? Like they, they know this is a tiny pool and, and forgive my language, peeing in it is a terrible idea, right? That's yeah. part of it. Yeah. Yep. But part of it is they, they come to the court with mostly stable relationships, right? And that sort of people who are used to being married to a judge and know yeah, how their all spouses have freed them up to have that kind of singular focus to succeed the way they have, right? right. I mean, Ginsburg, you know, gave her, her, her husband, Marty, a whole bunch of credit. Okay, um, um, Scalia. I mean, Scalia, you know, was was just like, you know, you know, you know, my wife ran our house. She made it easy for me, okay, to be a judge, right? And that was a huge house because they had nine kids, right? Okay, so. I love that Catholic upbringing, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, uh, so you don't but, see a lot of that, right? There but are didn't Sandra Day O'Connor date? Oh, when they were, uh, uh, when she was in law school at Stanford, she went out on two dates, uh, with another, uh, law school student, William Rehnquist. <laughs> that um, would be for anybody paying attention with a scorecard, Chief Justice William, William Rehnquist. Rehnquist. Okay. But, uh, after a couple dates, um, she made it very clear she wasn't interested in him. Um, then started dating uh, uh, somebody else, and she ended up marrying him, uh, John O'Connor. Um, but then, uh, uh, when she was uh, being considered by the Reagan administration for a vacancy on the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, to his credit, um, made it known to the Reagan administration that he thought that she would be an excellent justice um, because the Rehnquists and the O'Connors had known each other socially um, in the era, you know, Arizona politics, conservative, you know, world. Um, and they got along fabulously. Okay. But that's the that's the closest we come to any sort yes. of romance. Yes. It's yeah. a, a very yep. early. Yep. Um, yep stab at romance but so that's not a thing we see on the court even though we no. see good friends we don't see um no. good Nobody's... friends the way they refer to them in the other branches yeah no, no, <laughs> that no. person's just my good friend yeah uh-huh yeah um, nobody ever alleged that ruth bader ginsburg and um uh anton and scalia okay had an affair had anything more than uh, a friendship okay, okay? they were right. good i colleagues. just wanted to clear yeah. that up because yes. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Of all the salacious rumors, that in fact is not one of the ones that no. the court. No. More salacious are what we're getting to now, which are the people who, I'm going to say, uh, gently disliked each other. Yeah. Would you say gently disliked, or would you say something a little stronger? Oh, I would say something a little bit stronger. But this um, is a a family a family show. podcast. <laughs> yes, this is a family podcast. Uh, probably. Well, the, the, the biggest, okay, probably the, the most hated, detested, evil justice. And these aren't personal relationships in the sense that a lot of people disliked these people, right? Yes. Like we've had, I'm assuming, 
personal, like one-on-one sort we, of. We will get to some really of the, the, the personal one-on-ones, but probably the most detested Supreme Court justice was uh, uh, Justice uh, uh, McReynolds. He was appointed to the court in the 19-teens by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, by the way, as a progressive, <laughs> but he gets on the court and he is, he became um, a, a member of the conservative wing of the court. But what he was most noted for was he was a vehement anti-Semite, okay? Um, and uh, there were a couple reported instances uh, where he refused to sit for the Supreme Court group photo because two of his colleagues were Jews. We're talking about Justices Brandeis and Cardozo. Brandeis, um, who a college is named for. Yes. And Cardozo, who many things are named for, it, right? These are highly respected. Oh, their their qualifications as justices, as legal talents, beyond the pale. Okay. So, um, my opinion, and. I read that in your notes, and my first thought was, then he shouldn't be a Supreme Court justice, because if his, if his views of, of his Jewish colleagues, who he knew were brilliant, he had to know, right, by reading their work, he had to know. If he wouldn't sit next to them in a photo, how could anybody expect to get, how could any Jew before the court expect to get fair treatment from him? And you said something interesting to me when I fussed at you before we, because sometimes, time, by the way, listeners, I fuss at Augie before we start recording, and he's very patient with me. Well, no, I mean, rightfully so. But at that time, views about Jews in the United States um, were not as evolved as they are today. Um, and, you know, to give you a sense of this, Nia, you know, you just mentioned Louis Brandeis. Louis Brandeis, when he was nominated by Woodrow Wilson, um, his confirmation hearing was one of the most protracted for that day and time because there were members of the United States Senate who were openly against Jews. They're like, you know, we can't have a Jew on our Supreme Court. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, and, and, and you pointed out something very smart, which I would like to, because you reminded me, I would like to remind listeners. This is 1914. Yes. And I'm viewing that through a 2022 lens of that guy should have been booted off the court. He should have never been started, considered. Right. Yes. As soon as he started acting like a jerk face, that should have been the end of that. But that's the problem with non-historians looking at historical things. I am not a historian. And so I have a tendency to view things through my current lens, which is you can't serve because you're not, you have unreasonable views. Yes. But in 1914. His views were not unreasonable in American views, society. They were common. Yeah, they were common, which is not to say that that was correct. Right. Right. But I mean, understand too, 
that you know the United States government led by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was well aware of what the Nazis were doing to the Jews okay in the 1930s and basically did not lift a finger to help them right then isolationist tendencies yeah. that's their problem not our problem no, you know, that's a world didn't even, problem didn't even raise the immigration numbers of Jews who wanted to leave Germany, Poland, Austria, etc. Well, and we return and we returned the refugee ship. Yes. So, I mean, you know, the history of the United States treatment of outsiders of minorities is has been despicable for most of the country's history. Right. Right. Um, I mean, for a, a long period of time, um, there was a bias against having Catholics on the Supreme Court because they were open. The, the, the question was, would they be faithful to the law or would they be faithful to the Pope? Which was the same question raised about, J, about JFK. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about diversity on the court. Because one yes. of the things is how we got a more diverse religious set of folks on the court yes. but i do like your fun your, i have to say your final point about him makes me happy isn't when that terrible went. i am a terrible human because it <laughs> makes me happy that when he died none of the nope. justices went to his funeral yes uh when McReynolds died and he died uh, just a few years after he retired from the uh, from the supreme court um uh no member of the court um showed up to his funeral I'm petty, um, and that makes me happy. And um, sorry, and, and that's, sorry, and, listeners. But that's highly unusual because this, right. again, you feel obligated to go if you've served with people for many years, and and and, 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 and again, in that unique work situation, right? Even those justices that you may have fought with, they have probably earned your respect because they have been trying to do the same difficult job as you have been over a number of years. Oh, no, nobody wanted to go. I, I, I think they all turned up at Scalia's funeral, even though he had at one point or another lacerated most of them in, I mean, in his opinions. In his yeah. opinions. <laughs> I, I think they went because they respected that he stood up for himself and he stood up for what he believed and he was consistent, you know, like, Yes. Yeah. So okay. I'm kind of I'm petty that I'm I'm so small inside that I'm like, oh, none of them went to his funeral. Ah, he got what he deserved. OK, but there you go. And, but I mean, and again, and I try to remind my students of this, you know, don't be too hard because remember, they're humans, too. Right. Right. I mean, our, the next one is um, uh, justice that I wanted to point out is uh, Justice uh, William O. Douglas, um, um, frequently referred to as Cowboy Bill, because uh, uh, he was born and raised, okay, out west, okay. Um, uh, he William was O. Period Douglas, like yes. Oscar Douglas. Yes, William O. Douglas. As opposed to O. O. Connor. O. Douglas, yeah, like. Right, who with the, <laughs> with the uh, apostrophe. Yeah, right, no. Okay. Yeah, he was appointed to the Supreme Court by uh, President Roosevelt. Um, and 
It's okay no, to go ahead and say it. Sorry, we're going to have a family cursing moment here. Just bear with he us. He was a pain in the butt, okay? There he was mercurial. He was, he was smart, okay? But there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that he was disappointed that he was still on the Supreme Court the last roughly two decades he was on the court. Because at one point, he so desperately wanted to be nominated by the Democratic Party to be Roosevelt's vice president because Douglas harbored a desire to be president of the United States. Okay. 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 Um, and he kind of sort of viewed being on the court as a kind of sort of way station Okay, something that he would put up with until he could finally become president. Okay? Wow. Yes. Boy, did he get that wrong? Yeah. Can I can I just side note? Um, yes. He had four wives. He had four wives. Yes. And I like that you have in here in your notes that two of them were much younger and former secretaries. Yes. And when we were saying that romance does not happen at the at the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court, we mean romance between the justices. Just, yeah. We don't mean potentially things like, oh, I found a new secretary. She's delightful. I'll marry her or whatever. Because well, and, and this that is really probably good, has happened more than just him. Well, and this is a really good example of how times and morals change. Because, you know, we're recording a podcast episode in the era of Me Too. Oh, my goodness. And, okay. And what goes on in the professional setting, okay, um, is greatly different than what went on in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and well into the 1970s. That's an heck excellent that, point. Heck, for that matter, you could argue as recently as the 1990s. But, yeah, you know. That's an excellent point that secretaries, <laughs> marrying your secretary back in the day. Was not unusual, right? right? Starting an affair with an employee, okay, that you obviously had power over was not unusual, right? right? We've come a um, long way, baby. Yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, uh, but uh, he was he he irritated his colleagues. He treated his clerks okay terribly, right? I mean, there were instances, and multiple clerks have confirmed this. He would fire a clerk on a Friday but he would expect them to come into work on Monday. And when they didn't, he would get on the phone, okay, and yell at them, <laughs> asking them why they weren't at work. And his clerks would be like, but you fired me on Friday. And he was just like, <laughs> I fire all my clerks. Okay, get your blankety blank, blank, blank into the office because I have work for you to do, right? <laughs> Am he I fired, fired, or am I not fired? <laughs> he, he, he upset his colleagues so much because he frequently threatened to air, air the court's dirty laundry in public. You know, he would threaten to write dissenting opinions explaining how the court actually processed a case. And his colleagues would be like, you can't do that. Okay, that's unacceptable behavior. Okay. Um, so he was just an all around jerk. Yes. And, and, and probably the group that did not get along the most 
were the justices appointed by FDR. And again, the, 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 the juxtaposition that four of these justices were appointed by FDR and they just hated each other. I mean, they just could not stand each other personally, Nia, right? So Douglas- These are the scorpions just, in the bottle. Yeah these, are the, yeah, these are the infamous scorpions in a bottle. So Douglas did not get along with his fellow nominee, uh, Robert Jackson or Felix Frankfurter, okay? He thought Jackson, okay, um, didn't belong on the court and he resented Felix Frankfurter who was a Harvard law professor because Frankfurter, okay, was unwilling to be as liberal and as activist as Douglas, okay? Frankfurter got on the nerves of basically all of his colleagues because he basically lectured them like he would his law students. <laughs> so he was condescending. Oh, extremely. Okay. And he reserved his greatest condescension for Hugo Black because Hugo Black never finished law school. <laughs> well, and <clears throat> I'm not surprised by that. I'm not surprised that he would sort of pull the elitist card of, yes. I know more than you because I have graduated from a fancy schmancy law school and blah, 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 blah. I mean, we see that today. We see that today with um, Harvard graduates versus let's just say, oh, I don't know, University of Richmond, although that's not really a comparison, but you know, but even that, they'll say, well, I mean, you just graduated from the University of Richmond. I graduated from Harvard. I and, went to an Ivy or... Right, I, to know, an elite school. You, you, went to, you went to a state university, but I went right. to a private university, um, et cetera, et cetera. We still see that kind of elitism, but it was writ large at the Supreme Court, and it was made even more fascinating because the same president appointed all of these justices. Right? And we're going to talk about that in our episode on the myth of merit. Yes. Yes. So, so we're coming, we're touching on some themes now that we're going to come back to in, in yes. more episodes this summer. Well, um, I mean, and in Robert Jackson, okay, uh, kind of sort of got along with Frankfurter because they basically had the same kind of judicial restraint perspective, but Jackson hated Black and Douglas because he believed those two justices interceded with Truman when the chief justice position became vacant and scuttled Jackson's opportunity to become chief justice. Because there's quite a bit of historical evidence to suggest that when FDR appointed Jackson to the Supreme Court, FDR promised Jackson that the next time the chief justice position became vacant, FDR would promote him to be chief justice. Well, that did not happen when FDR was alive. It happened next when Truman became president and Truman picked somebody else and Jackson was livid. Jackson was just like, okay, Black and Douglas must have gone 
to Truman and said, you can't appoint Jackson as chief justice. Although it could just be that Truman knew and didn't want to do that. Well, I mean, Truman was a Truman's basic attitude was I didn't make you that promise. Exactly. Okay, my predecessor did. And my predecessor died before my, yes. th- before this position opened. I am not obligated. I'm not obligated, right? So Jackson went public. Jackson went public. He wrote an op-ed that got published in a bunch of newspapers. Okay. And in the process, accused Hugo Black of conflict of interest because Hugo Black participated in a case a couple years earlier. Uh, where one of the attorneys was Hugo Black's former law partner. And he didn't recuse himself. He didn't recuse himself. And Jackson goes ahead and reports this. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so anybody who thinks that the court's dysfunctional now, I got news for you. It's significantly better than it has been in historical. Yeah, I but mean, isn't isn't this really though, in part, a failure on the part of the chief justice to wrangle people and get them to be? Yeah, I mean, I mean, most. I would think that some of that's leadership. That you need to have somebody strong to say, yeah, I don't care if you dislike this person or not. You're not going to act like this in public. Yeah, most judicial politics scholars um, have identified uh, chief justice leadership is an important variable in whether or not the justices will get along um, and perform effectively as a group. Because again, that's, and I keep on coming back to this and I apologize listeners, but this is a small group organization that has a particular task. So if they're not getting along personally, it can affect the organization's ability to do their work. Now, some chief justices by pretty much every account exhibited uh, phenomenal leadership. So for instance, John Marshall um, uh, in the early 1800s, Charles Evan Hughes, Um, He guided the Supreme Court during the Great Depression, during the New Deal. Um, Earl Warren uh, in the court in the 1950s and 60s kind of sort of bounded together and led the civil rights revolution on the court. Other chief justices, however, Harlan Fist Stone, who actually was the chief justice for a good chunk of the time where we are talking about the scorpions in a bottle. (laughs) I mean, Harlan Fist Stone, some of their conference deliberations, Nia, lasted days, days, okay? Oh, he needed to talk to my boss about how to set an agenda. She can run an efficient meeting. Yeah, right. I'm just saying one of my one of one of my great admirations for my boss is that we regularly meet in end meetings early or on time. We just don't go late very much anymore. I mean, and, and for listeners, me and I are particularly, shall we say, sensitive. <laughs> I was going to say unfond, but okay, yes, sensitive uh, to meetings being run efficiently and effectively 
Right. Because it's okay we, if we need to go over as long as there's a reason to go over and it's not just because. And we're making substantive progress right. on exactly. whatever we're, we're, we are tackling. But because we have so many meetings as academics, um, if they're not run well, uh, our disdain, Ugh. our frustration goes up dramatically. Well, and then uh, it makes you not want to show up for the next one. And it just turns yes. into a whole thing. Yes, right. And then personal animosities, you know, flower and bloom. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, another chief justice who gets really poor marks um, was Warren's successor, Chief Justice Warren Berger. Yeah, it's uh, really bad to me that it's it's Earl Warren Warren Berger. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Okay. A lot of my students were like, his last name was Berger. I'm like, yes, stop the jokes. Don't even let there, them. There was also a Frankfurter. Move on. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, there, yeah okay. <laughs> um, but you don't even have to like the J Chief Justice's jurisprudence if they run the court well. And a couple good examples of this are Chief Justice William Howard Taft um, and also Justice Rehnquist. A lot of his li liberal colleagues were like, you know, we're not fans of his jurisprudence, but they were like, he ran the court well. They, they Our, call that a tight ship. They run yes. a tight ship. When yeah, he runs is... a tight ship, right? Conferences, okay, were, you know, you know, short to the point, we cover the case, we take the vote, we assign the opinion, we move on. And he did something that I just absolutely love as a college professor. He actually came up with a spreadsheet that he would issue at the end of every month to all the justices that reported who had what majority opinions and what was the status of the opinion. And until they finished writing that majority opinion, they were precluded from receiving another majority opinion assignment. <laughs> okay. You're going to write one at a time and you're going to get it done. You don't get to like... have four or five at a time. I like <laughs> I love, that. I love that. Okay. And I love a good spreadsheet. I have to admit. Yeah, yeah. So I have a tendency to be like, oh, you know what we could do? We could put that in a spreadsheet. <laughs> that in, in tends to be my way. <laughs> in, in listeners, uh, uh, I can confirm um, because usually once or twice a year, uh, Nia produces a spreadsheet of what episodes we have done, what ep episodes we have already planned, and what episodes we might want to do in the future. Um, it is a very effective tool for uh, this absent-minded professor. Um, but there is one more category of justice that I want to mention. Um, um, now, can I preface this? Yeah, go ahead. You're going to talk about, I'm going to steal your thunder a little bit. You're going to talk about loners. Yes. And I want to make a note that these are loners on the court. The court of people who are already monkish and keep to themselves, yeah. right? Like this is not your disco court up in here where everybody's dancing and singing and it's a party. 
So these are loners from that group. Yes. I don't know that these would not be in some ways called Unabombers, right? Like they're... (laughs) If they did not, if they had not found their life's purpose that was considered productive and meaningful and valuable to society... They'd be hermits. (laughs) Yes. These are not loners. These are hermits. Um, and there are uh, three in particular I want to go ahead and point out. One is the aforementioned Justice David Souter. David Souter was appointed to the Supreme Court by Bush 41 um, from New Hampshire. Um, and uh, uh, he's a bachelor. He still is. He's still alive. But he so disliked Washington, D.C. and the attention he received as a Supreme Court justice that he retired during the Obama administration and he moved back to his family farm in New Hampshire. Um, And by all accounts, he was physically and mentally still very capable to do the job, but he just didn't like (laughs) Done now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he just did not like D.C. He didn't like the attention he received being on the court. Um, he just liked being alone. Yes. Yes. He's a um, Yeah. Well, um, and I, I just as a side note, I'm not going to say that I disagree with not wanting to live in DC. Um, I live yeah, in yeah. Richmond and Richmond is as large a city as I can handle. Uh, I think pretty much traffic wise. I don't know if I could live in DC on any sort of regular basis. And I know for positive fact, I could not live in New York or London or Calcutta and try to drive anywhere. Like I just wouldn't be able to, as uh, my ex- nerves could not take that. As I've explained to my students, they said, you gotta remember David Souter was born and raised in New Hampshire on the family farm, Right. okay? He went to small, you know, private, Ivy League schools um, where he could just throw himself into his work, okay? The fact that he had to move to Washington, D.C., okay, and then join a group, an organization that at least once or twice a year just gets absolutely ripped by one political party or the other because of their rulings is not something that he had to enjoy, right? He's a small town, you know, American. Right. Um, um, well, and the media all up in your grill yes. trying to find out what's going on. And, yes, you know, and the and, fact that he, he was unusual, right? A bachelor today, okay? You know well, what the what the rumor mill was? Right. Uh, uh, and, and, and he resented it. He just absolutely resented it. He hated it, right? because his Um, private life is his private life well yes okay he's a private new englander right i mean in in some ways you know he's he is a stereotype right Right. um the other two um i've already mentioned one robert jackson um again because everybody hated him well but not everybody not everybody i mean not everybody but he again was born and raised in upstate new york Okay, in a small town, James, Jamestown, New York, right? 
Um, and uh, he had a successful solo practice as a lawyer uh, before he became uh, uh, noticed in democratic state politics by then Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? Well, and uh, do you think that some of his lonerness also came from when he was denied the chief justice position and he felt resentment uh, over well, that? I, I mean, that might have driven him further into a sort of, you know what, screw you people. He, he um, in various uh, scholarly accounts, um, he openly questioned um, uh, what good he did. Mm. I mean, and before he was chief justice, he was solicitor general of the United States. So, and did that job so well that some of the justices of the Supreme Court said he should be solicitor general for life. Ah, okay. Um, uh, he was one of FDR's most trusted, um, if you will, lieutenants, okay, during the New Deal. Um, but he never took to Washington, D.C., never took to working with other people. He liked being a solo, solo practitioner. Um, and, uh, and then the last loner, sorry, listeners, you're going to get a little bit of a spiel about the subject of my dissertation, but Byron White. Um, Byron White served on the court uh, for uh, 30 years. Um, and by most accounts, never became good friends with any of his fellow justices. <laughs> um, he, um, and uh, he was uh, scholars, some scholars say he was conservative, others say he was a New Deal Kennedy liberal, um, so he was hard to pigeonhole. Um, my favorite description of him was he was a lawyer's judge, meaning he would issue votes and decisions to settle a particular case, and then he would move on. Ah. He would move on. Um, uh, one of the fastest writers on the court, um, he would push his clerks to get draft opinions out of his office okay, within a week. Whoa, okay. okay. Um, because he thought the court should actually hear more cases. I'm with him. Okay, he thought the court should hear more cases, um, but uh, 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 so he was hard to typecast, right? You know, is he a liberal? Is he a conservative? What is his jurisprudential philosophy? Um, he was sometimes viewed as brusque, okay? Um, you know, just give me the answer, right? That's what he would say to his clerks. Just give me the answer. He would say that <laughs> to attorneys during cases. So what's your answer, right? Um, and I'm like, there, there is an appeal, right? I was gonna <laughs> say, hmm, knowing <laughs> you and hearing these things, hmm. But I mean, and again, that those types of figures struggle on a small group because again you see each other so frequently right uh you know for easily you know eight and a half nine months out of the year 
Okay, you're seeing the same people, you're reading their thoughts, you're taking votes with them um, over and over again. Being a loner, it's pretty difficult to go ahead and escape that, right? Well, this so, is eight hours a day, yeah. five days a week. I mean, yep, yep. Right. The business of the court is ongoing for it's a job. It, it's it a is job, a, which and, is, makes it both easier in some ways, I imagine. Right. But also a lot harder in that. I don't know that you. OK. I, I'm going to venture out here on a limb and I know we need to wrap up, but you as a professor. Are. Your job is not 40 hours a week. Your job is. Right. You teach, but you also have office hours and you're expected to check email even on the weekends because things are due on the weekends right? and students have questions. And so it's it's a it can be a consuming like yes. one has to really draw the line in order to get sort of work life balance. Yes. And I'm assuming that it's a lot in some way similar for the justices. They don't really get to escape because a lot of what they do is in their head a lot of what they do is thinking and yes. thinking through a question so you know that they don't just get to say at six o'clock in the evening okay i'm done thinking like that's not how that that's not how that works they're watching an episode of law and order and they're of course pulling it apart and saying well that's not legal right like <laughs> they're doing it because every lawyer i sit with who does law and order they're like you know you can't do that i'm like don't ruin this for me just let me enjoy it but <laughs> but besides that they're also in the back of their minds ticking over the day's work and whether they've said whether they phrased things the way they want to phrase them precisely enough or clearly or, you know enough. how to go ahead and work out this complex legal question right and you know how many times are they sitting there for instance you know during you know uh, uh one of their children's you know sporting events or you know concerts or or you know they're 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 at dinner okay and you know and and they and, go oh oh and they need to make a note, right? Yeah, of a thing yeah, right. That they or, want, they know, want to look up or a thing. You know, they the, the, want to... their spouse or their child goes ahead and says, Are you paying attention to me? And, you know, because, it, it, and that's happened for me, right? Right. You know, where, you know, my daughter is saying, You know, hey, daddy, let's go for a bike ride. And we're on the bike ride, and she'll go ahead and ask me a question. I'm like, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Mackenzie, could you uh, repeat the question? Now, she doesn't know yet or hasn't figured out that I might actually be thinking about, you know, something that I want to get across to my students, but I haven't figured out how the best way to do it. Right. Right. Because you always update your examples from semester to semester. You semester, your right. Examples. I mean, and, and, and right. why is it that when I went ahead and presented X this semester, the students just didn't seem to get it? But in the past, they did. Right. So am I doing And how do I change that? Right. Yeah, how do I change that? Am I doing something wrong? Well, you know, et cetera. And, in, in, and to your point, that's where, you know, the difficulty is, you know, with, you know, people who are loners, right? Is that um, how do they go ahead and fit into a group where the work can be so consuming, right? um and, and and you know this you know nia well and how do they um, not lose themselves yeah lose themselves i mean because you know 
you know this with me, you know, come the beginning of July, I take five, six weeks off and it's pretty difficult to find me. Yeah. The only thing that's coming out are the podcasts. Yes. The podcasts and you chauffeur a kid from this camp from summer to that thing camp. to summer thing. Yeah, right. Okay. But, but other than that, having been friends with you now for several years, you disappear. And it's just a matter of, I send a text or like, are you alive? And you write back, yes. And that's the extent of it because yes, you're laying on the couch, reading new books to incorporate into class and watching new movies to incorporate into class and doing all those things that you do that let you recharge a little bit. I, I feel for some of these folks that, because I can see where David Suter would say this pressure is unbelievable. It yes. is, un- and they want to know me personally. Like he would have found that appalling, I assume. Oh yes, yeah. And I'm assuming that your that your favorite justices, you know, like Byron White and, and Robert Jackson, also probably would have found that appalling. You don't need to know me. What you need to do is look at my body of work. You don't need to know me personally. But we as media, we not as media, we as people tend to want to know yes. the personalities of the justice. We delight in the stories of Scalia and Ginsburg going to the opera together and getting slightly sloshed. Like we love that. We think that's <laughs> we think that's marvelous because it humanizes them. Yes. But it also invades their privacy in a way that uh, for some people must be exhausting. And 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 also for listeners we're talking about justices who in many ways were born of a different time. Right. This is all pre-social media. The ones now it, must be under excruciating. I mean, because, and maybe some of them like it, but historically most justices have not, you yeah. know, Byron White grew up in Colorado. Okay. On a farm, you know, he went, weeks without seeing anybody other than his family <laughs> right okay um you know sandra day o'connor okay had probably more in common with ranch hands than she did with many of the justices that she worked okay um, um so you know these are people who with 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 some noted exceptions don't gravitate towards a whole bunch of people knowing about their personal lives because that's not the era they grew up in right well and it doesn't and it has no bearing on the jurisprudence that's right okay and for them things that have no bearing on the jurisprudence don't matter like this and they can be remarkably (laughs) single-minded right okay (laughs) Right. So, so that's our first episode. Um, yes. Sort of these interpersonal loved and hated. And we may, um, as we talk about other things, also bring up whether they were loved or hated or not. Uh, we will be bringing out um, episodes on other things like the, the merit question right, which schools end up, which people end up on the Supreme Court, the diversity questions that we have, not only about race, but also about religion. So we're looking forward to all that with y'all. And thank and, and, you, and also, Augie, I'm looking forward to this with you, because this is this is the kind of stuff I'm really interested in about the court. I like the cases, don't get me wrong. But I'm also interested in the personalities. 
I'm interested in how those people come to be where they are. Well, and also, too, uh, listeners, we're going to do an episode about the final resting places. Yes. Um, yes. Of Some Court of them Justices. are going to surprise you. Um, and um, because, again, that doesn't get a lot of attention. I mean, right. you know, we, we know about presidents. We know about, you know, seminal figures in the United States Congress. But, you know, for many of the justices, um, you'll be surprised to find out, you know, um, you know, where, where their final resting places are, um, et cetera. So um, uh, we're going to take a, again, uh, I, I think the appropriate metaphor is we're going to take a, uh, a really uh, deep dive uh, behind the curtain um, and, and see what goes on <gasps> with the Supreme Court. We should call this series Behind the Robe. Oh. Ooh, SCOTUS Behind the Robe. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.